0: please rise as we have our scripture reading tonight, which comes from Psalm 33. You can find it on page 463 of your pew Bible. This is God's word. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap, he puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom He has chosen as His heritage the lord looks down from heaven he sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth he who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds the king is not saved by his great army a warrior is not delivered by his great strength the war horse is a false hope for salvation and by its great might it cannot rescue behold The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever and ever. Let's pray together. Our God, we pray, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Perhaps you've heard me say this before. Write. Doctrine leads to right doxology, or right doctrine leads to doxology. If it doesn't, you're not doing it right. If you don't understand the truth of God's word and who he is and what he has done, then you're not praising him rightfully. And that is perhaps what we see most clearly stated in Psalm 33. Some people have tried to say it's a companion piece to Psalm 32. Uh, We saw that last week, it's this confession of sin and the one who is delivered has much to be thankful for, has much to praise the Lord for, but I'm not certain that's the only reason why this psalm is here. I think it's trying to stir the hearts of the people of God. How is it that we are to praise God and why then should we praise Him? Those are our two points. How do you praise God? Why should you praise Him? Or if I could say it this way, how, that is doxology. Why, that is doctrine. Look with, with me in verse 1 through 3. He says, Shout for, the, shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to Him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. The psalmist is preparing us of what it means and how are we to, in fact, praise the Lord. I do not think the psalmist has in mind you and I just entirely lack the ability. We just don't have the knowledge of how are we to praise God. I think he's pressing on our hearts for a moment to say, but do you and I, in fact, praise God? I was hopeful that I would have a moment To share this illustration You all had joy with us A few weeks ago The battery You know where I'm going with this I rarely get to share Baseball illustrations But the Atlanta Braves If you've been living under a rock And you didn't know this They won the World Series I messed that up for you But I had the privilege With some of you We went up there for game one And it was beautiful You remember it well Don't you? Jorge Soler, first batter, and he made him pay for it. That is, he hit a home run. Now, if you were there or you watched it on TV, nobody was looking around for instruction on what to do. There was no sign that said, now is time to applause. Nobody was saying, you need to cheer this way. There's never instruction for you and I on how to cheer. Why? Because God has so made you to worship. There is something about the way in which we have been made by God that the whole being of who we are knows instinctively how to praise and how to worship. The problem is, when do we use such talents and gifts? How and when do we worship? That's what the psalmist is pushing on here. He's wanting you and I to understand how do we praise God. He's giving us a reminder that you and I have, in fact, a great deal of reason to praise the Lord. That's why he begins in verse 3. He says, sing to him a new song. Each and every time in which we see the Lord work, it is to provide for you and me a new song of praise. That phrase, a new song, shows up five times in the Psalms. Two of them are in what we call the enthronement Psalms. That is the focus of God himself on the throne. He is Lord of all. In Isaiah, you'll find the same phrase, sing a new song, and Isaiah is using that phrase to talk about works of deliverance. You have experienced something. Sing to the Lord a new song. And in fact, you can find that phrase in the book of Revelation that has a picture in mind of eternal deliverance. And John says, Sing to the Lord a new song. How do we understand the idea of sing a new song? Is it meant to say you sing a new song because God has done something new? Is it sing to To the Lord a new song because you remember something that God has done. I think the answer is yes. What the psalmist is saying is there is never an acceptable praise in which it is stale. You have a reason to sing because God is always at work. There is a, Derek Kidner would use the word freshness. There's a freshness in newness. You have seen God do something in your very midst and you have a reason to sing to him a new song. You could say there's a a freshness in oldness. You remember what he has done. Maybe it's in your life, your personal life, your family life. Maybe it's in the life of your church. Maybe it's in the life of your community. Maybe it's in the life of redemptive history. And then there's a freshness. Yes, I'm making up a word. And maybe what we would say is not yetness. So newness, oldness, and not yetness. That is, what is to come? We can sing to the Lord knowing for certain that Christ is returning as king and he's going to bring home his people. There is meant to be a, a new song upon your lips, upon my lips. There is never meant to be a staleness in our praise of God. We praise him over and over, but the psalmist doesn't just say, sing to the Lord a new song. He says, sing to him a new song and play skillfully on the strings. We should praise God with excellence. Your toes got a little bit stepped on this morning, and so I figured I should step back on them in case you forgot. What is the psalmist saying here? He's Pushing. How do we praise God? You praise Him skillfully. What does that mean? I don't think He means we're to praise Him professionally. I think He's saying we praise Him excellently. That has a high calling for you and I. It means we don't have a sloppy worship service. It means the choir needs to practice. It means those who lead in worship need to practice. It means those of you who come into this house to worship, you need to practice. And what does that mean? Perhaps a practical application. You got the email. Here's the bulletin. YouTube the songs. Have an idea of what is coming so that you know exactly how to sing it. We want to know how to praise him skillfully with excellence. Those who lead, whether it's musicians or those who lead the choir or those who lead in prayer, every aspect of our worship service is meant to say, we do this with excellence. We praise God with excellence. Is that how you come into worship? That's what the psalmist is getting at. You and I can't just have these fuzzy feelings of what it means to praise God and then we get in here and we, well, we, we whisper these songs of praise. Or we just accept sloppy steps. We praise God with everything that we have. We praise him with excellence, skillfulness. We have a mindset that says, you're an excellent God. You deserve our highest praise. Therefore, we will give you our highest and greatest effort to do so. So he says, sing to the Lord a new song. Play skillfully. And then he says, with loud shouts. There's meant to be an intensity, a a passionate, a fervor to your worship. I'll never forget. You might not know him personally, and that's okay, but if you've ever heard him speak, Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, he's not a very loud man, but he said on one Sunday, I'll never forget it, he said, The people of God know nothing of the whisper to praise. There's no such thing as whispers of praise in heaven. There's only the shouts of those who understand who he is. Is that how you and I worship our God? Or are we so concerned about how bad we sound or how silly we look that we we sing so quietly and we fail to understand who it is, in fact, that we are here to worship? You've met these people, right? You've been on the road. Some of them are not Christians, and you can tell just because of what they're listening to. But they don't care who you are. They're dancing in their car. And you enjoy it, don't you? Some of you take your phones out and take a video. But there's something about that that isn't there something refreshing that says they don't care that they're at Atlanta Road and it's rush hour and everybody sees them, but they're so captivated by whatever thing that they're listening to that they let themselves go. There's a sense in which we're to let ourselves go in worship because we know who God is. We have a reason to praise him. I'm not saying that there's never a song or a hymn that, that is to quiet our soul and bring about reflection, but you understand the principle, don't you? When the world, when you have all of this enthusiasm and excitement to give to the world, but all you have is a cold, casual, stale word of praise to God, there's a problem. When we can't come in here and praise him with every bit of our being, there's a problem. But you and I can go to the parade and lose our very voice because we're cheering for a baseball team. We want to know how to praise God, perhaps the reason that we don't know how to praise him is we're uncertain of who it is that we're praising. If you knew who God was, would it not change the way in which you praise him? And that's what the psalmist spends the majority of the psalm on. He gives us a perspective, a preparation for how to praise him. But the bulk of his time is spent saying, why, why should you and I praise him? The third question and answer of the shorter catechism, what do the scriptures principally teach? The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. And the reason why that is a, an, a very important question for you is if you've ever read the entirety of the Shorter Catechism, you can really understand the entirety of it with that question. If you understood what they're suggesting here and what the scriptures principally teach, what you would read is from question four through about 38 or 39. That is the doctrine. That is what you are to believe about God. And then from 39 or 40 to 107, that is the duty and the morals that God requires of us. And so when we want to understand what it means to praise him, we want to go into the scriptures and let the scriptures tell us why. Psalm 119, you know it because it's very, very long, but did you know that six times in Psalm 119, which is a long Psalm to say, this is the law of God, six times different times it says praise God as we understand the word of God our doctrine is to produce doxology if it doesn't we're not doing it right you're not reading your Bible correctly if you don't finish with a praise unto the Lord so what does the psalmist say? How are, why are we to praise God? There's a few things that we could put as principles. We are to praise God because of his work and his word. You can see that in verses four through nine. He's telling us that there is something inseparable about the word of God and the work of God. That's what Isaiah tells you, isn't it? That the word of God never returns void but it always finishes what its purpose is. It means that God doesn't speak any empty words. Every time he speaks, there is a work that is accompanied by it. It doesn't mean that you and I know what that work looks like, but it does mean it works. We've heard about this great, Uh, counselor Lou Priolo, he was asking a question on uh, church discipline and, and why people don't want it, don't agree with it, don't like it. And one of the excuses that was giving is, it doesn't work. And my thought was, well, how do you know? What does it mean that it works? What happens if the work of discipline was to convict, was to tell someone you're actually wrong and you're a sinner? It works. Or in fact, maybe its purpose was to bring them back in. We don't know all of the works of God, but we do know as he speaks, he does in fact work. There's something inseparable about the word of God and the work of God. And that's why in verse 4, it tells us that the word of God is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. It, it means that it's, it's straight. The word of God, is, it is level, it is leading somewhere, and it will complete wherever in which it is going. That is how we are to understand God's word. It is never to say something and, and leave us entirely ambiguous. God reveals himself in his word because he wants us to know who he is, not so that we're questioning who he is. He reveals himself so we know who he is his word and his work. Now, it's simple enough for the psalmist to say that God made everything. And you and I could say, yes, that is true. But I think what the psalmist is trying to say here is as a reason, as a motivation for why we should praise him, he wants you to know something about the creator, not just what he created. God's not simply a creator. It's who he is as a creator. And so the psalmist says he's loving. He loves righteousness and justice. There's a steadfast love with God. There's faithfulness. It's a beautiful thing to understand who God is, not simply what God does. And it's interesting, isn't it, because you read a phrase, and perhaps if you know your Bible well, it made you stop for a moment. Verse, uh, was it four? No, five. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. You've heard that phrase before, haven't you? The earth is full of, but Isaiah tells you it's the glory of God. The psalmist here says, Yet the glory of God is full also with the love of God. That is hesed. That's the word that you and I keep no, uh, hearing about in the Psalter. This never ending, never growing, never leaving, always remaining love of God. That's what the earth is full of. When God shows up, that is what is there with him. This hesed, this steadfast love, And so the psalmist says, you and I as believers have every reason to praise him when you know that that is who God is. You know, no other religion can say that. No other religion has a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God with all of their people. You talk to some other people who participate in different religions. There's anxiety about them, isn't there? They're not certain how their God is going to treat them if they break a commandment. They're not even sure, what will God X do if he gets tired of me? What's the point? Other religions have an unpredictable God. But the God of the Bible is extremely predictable. Not in a boring sense, but in a comforting. sense. And, and confidence sense. You you know who he is, you know what he's about, and you know what he does. It doesn't mean you know all of the works, but you know this is what he says, this is what he requires, and this is how he answers it. There's something quite enjoyable and comforting to know the Hesed God. We don't just praise him for his word and his work. We well, we look at what he's done. What has he done? You get the picture of Genesis 1, don't you? By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. That's that picture of Genesis 1, God said, and and there it was. It's the children's message we heard last week. When God speaks, life happens. He needs nothing. He speaks, and it comes into existence, and the psalmist is saying, yes, is God works, he does so effortlessly. Did you get that picture? Verse 7, he gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. He's, he's comparing something. He's saying, look at how large the bodies of water are. Yet in comparison to God, he just scoops them up. He puts them in. There's nothing to compare with our God. He doesn't just create, he controls And it's a powerful reason to praise him. And then verse 8, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. That is the response when we understand who it is that is spoken and what he has done. Many commentators, you've heard this before, I'm, I'm sure, they see the word fear and they immediately want you and I to think that is a reverence. That is a respect. Please don't misunderstand me. Do you need to be reverential in your walk with the Lord? Absolutely. Do you need to be respectful for who it is in which you are worshiping? Absolutely. But I don't think that's entirely what the psalmist is saying here. There is something terrifying about who God is. If you read your Bible, you read Psalm 29, when the voice of the Lord shows up and it is a destructive voice, you don't stand there and say, yeah, that's my bro, He's on my team. We're good buddies. You don't treat God casually. You and I, we should find a weakness about our knees when we see this God. If you want to have respect and reverence, it will become because you were afraid, you were terrified, you saw it. That is the picture that Isaiah is demonstrating in Isaiah 6. When the glory shows up, the building has the right sense to shake And it's not because they're respecting God. It's because an inanimate object knows who it is that has made his dwelling place within. There's something about you and I that says, we want to be respectful. But if you have never come to the place in which there's something that terrifies you about who God is, perhaps you don't know him the way you need to. We don't remain in that terrified state. We're led by the blood of Christ to a awe that's what he says. But if we don't know who it is, in fact, that we worship, there's no way that you and I worship skillfully, singing a new song, and we do so with passion, because your God's too small, and he's too controllable. And so we want to have a right view of the God of the Bible. We want to praise him for his word and his work in creation. But we don't want to just stop there. There's a reason for us to praise God because of his work in the coursing of history. Did you see what he says at the end? The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Nations have plans. God has a plan. And he says, the plans and the counsel of the Lord, well, it stands forever. What do the Proverbs say? Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord that directs his step. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. We do not have a God who creates and leaves We have a God who intervenes. He comes into our world and he understands us. And he says, I have a plan and my counsel will stand forever. And so he says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. It's an interesting word there, heritage. The Hebrew word there, he's describing an inheritance, an estate, an occupancy, a possession. If you were with us a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Smith was talking about this. The idea in Acts chapter 5 that they're the people of God. They're in the promised land. They're in Jerusalem. But what are the people of God doing in the promised land? They're selling it. They're selling off the estate. Or are they? I think what you read and understand in the Bible is what God said about the promised land, it was meant to be a shadow. That's what the author of Hebrews says. These people are looking for a heavenly country whose maker and builder is God. What a joy it is to be a citizen who finds not their citizenship here, but there. And so he says, there's reason for us to praise God because he works in the course of history. When you and I think nothing is happening, God is, in fact, doing something. We see something about this God in history in verse 13. He looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. He sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. You hear what he's saying. All, all, all. We have a perfect knowing God. He sees externally. In fact, he sees internally. That's the picture of the heart. He doesn't just see the actions of what's going on, he sees the motivations of why you did it. He knows the heart and he knows the hand and he observes them all. He knows them all. You cannot hide, you cannot escape. He has perfect knowledge and he has perfect control. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation and by its great might, it cannot rescue. What is he saying? When you look out in the world, what are our normal tendencies in understanding life and perceiving the world? Perhaps they're wrong. Perhaps they're not right. He uses the word great three times. You have great power. You have great plans, great strategies, great resources, and yet they cannot save. And so he says, you do not take hope in the plans of a man. You do not find salvation in the strategy of man. We find it in God. It's that picture You know the story well. The people of God have just been brought out of Egypt. Their backs are up against the sea. And what does Moses tell us about the people as they see the Egyptians coming? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not. Stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today shall never, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. We look not to the resources and works of our world, but we look to the word of our God. The impossible happens, not because we work harder or smarter but because we have a good and gracious God. When we trust in ourselves, it, it gets us nowhere. There's, a, there's an odd story in 1 Kings 22 where King Jehoshaphat and King Ahab, they're, they're teaming up. There's a, a little bit of land that seemingly is owned by Israel but the Syrians have control over it. And so Jehoshaphat reaches out and gets Ahab to join forces. And, and he says, right before we're gonna go into battle, all right, King Ahab, I need you to go get some prophets and let's make sure we have the permission of the Lord. And so Ahab goes and gets some prophets and they say, go and get after it. The Lord is with you. Why Jehoshaphat challenges them, I'm not quite sure. But he says, isn't there another prophet? And King Ahab says, Yes, but he always goes against me. I never like what he has to say. And so they call him, and whether or not he's being sarcastic or not, there seems to be some unclarity as to what they should do. So King Ahab takes it in his own hands. He says, I'm going to go out to battle. I'm going to change my outfit. I'm going to disguise myself. I'm going to go out. And as he's out, uh, what you find out is the Syrians, they had a very simple strategy, kill the king. That's it. And so they find King Jehoshaphat, and they think it's King Ahab, and as soon as they uncover him, and he says, I'm not him, they go, well, okay, I guess it's time to go home. And this is what you read. And when the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. But a certain man drew his bow at random, and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. It's a very ironic story. Nobody knew where King Ahab was. He was just, well, he was in a costume. And the guy fires at random. It doesn't mean he just shot it into the sky. It means he doesn't know who he's shooting at. And he killed the king of Israel. When we trust in ourselves, it gets us nowhere. But what the psalmist is saying here is when we trust in the Lord... There is great work. There is great hope. There is great salvation. The point is simple, the, that God destroys the man who defies His Word, defiles it. And that's what the psalmist has been trying to say. He's finishing with this simple truth, the, the God who made it all is the God who sustains it all and is the only God who can save and come to Him. Spurgeon says the Lord's hand goes with his eye. And that's what you see in verse 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in the steadfast love of the Lord. The shouts of praise that we begin with finish with some quiet expectation. The waiting of God's people three times. The psalmist says, our. What is he saying? He's, he's saying he wants you to own this. You have a possession. When you know who God is, there's ownership in how you praise him. There's reason for praising him. There's commitment to praising him rightfully. The God who promised is faithful. Trust him. And so he says, what's the constant position of a Christian? Your soul waits for him. We wait. What's the overflow of faith? Gladness. When you trust in the Lord, you cannot help but be joyful. And he offers us a prayer. How are you and I to pray as believers? You pray verse 22 and pray it regularly. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. You have a little bit of an answer tonight to that, don't you? Lord, keep your steadfast love upon us. Keep your covenant faithfulness. It's displayed. We have a picture of the covenant faithfulness of God. And yet there's something in which we're still awaiting. There's a not yetness. There's a final consummation in which we're awaiting the returning of the king. But until that king returns, he says, eat, feast. And be reminded of who I am in order that you might rightfully, truthfully, passionately, skillfully praise Him. Let me pray to that end. Our God and our Father, we marvel at the fact that you are God. You are holy You are good, you are righteous, you are just, you are loving, you are angry, you are gracious, and you are faithful. We have many more reasons to praise you. It's easy to be thankful for carnal things, and we want to be thankful for those things, and yet we pray, O Lord, teach us again and again the truth of who you are and what you do according to your word that we would praise you with all of our being and that's what the psalmist said praise befits the upright we want to know the straightness the completion of your word and where it takes us and that is Christ and so I do pray help us O Lord as a church help us to know your truth be committed to your truth for your truth will show us how to praise and worship you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.